0: Today's message is a, is a different kind of one than I typically preach. It's something that's, uh, that's very current with what's going on in our lives. Um, two years ago today, on July 17th, 2014, a fight broke out on a street corner in Staten Island, New York. Eric Garner, a large black man who was on the street, broke up that fight. Um, and the police were called. By the time the police got to that particular location, the two guys who were involved in the fight were gone. Eric Garner was there. He was selling cigarettes on the street, and the police decided to go ahead and arrest Eric Garner for illegally selling cigarettes. Garner Garner was understandably upset. He had just done the right thing in breaking up this fight, but in the midst of the process of the Officers arresting him, Garner was choked, ultimately to death. On the morning of April 12, 2015, bicycle police officers were patrolling a neighborhood in Baltimore, Maryland that was known for home foreclosures and vast illegal drug use. When the officers made eye contact with 25-year-old African-American Freddie Gray, Gray turned and began to run. He was caught by the police who was arrested and charged with carrying a knife. He was put into a police vehicle with his hands and his feet shackled. And in the journey to the police station, his spinal column was severed. Gray had no other injuries, but he died on that trip. Less than two weeks ago, on July 5th, Police in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, responded to a 911 call about a black man in a red shirt at a convenience store with a gun. The police officers arrived and wrestled Alton Sterling to the ground, and in that struggle, Sterling was shot and killed. The next day, on July 6th, Philando Castile, a black man riding with his girlfriend and her four-year-old daughter, was pulled over by police in the suburbs of St. Paul, Minnesota, be, reportedly because of a broken tail light, The police officer believed that Castile matched the description of a, of a robbery suspect that had just been called in. Castile was a registered and licensed firearm carrier. And when the officer saw the weapon as Castile reached for his license, the police officer, officer shot and killed him. The next day, Friday a week ago, on July 7th, at a Black Lives Matter rally in Dallas, Texas, Michael Xavier Johnson, an African-American veteran of the Afghan war, shot 12 police officers, killing five. We live in a crazy, messy, broken world. I'm on vacation. I hear all these reports. I'm looking on my phone, and a friend of mine, a man named Dan Smith, wrote a post on Facebook that, that cut through all the stuff. He cut through my despair, my hurt, my trying to figure out what was going on. And I want to share his post with you. Dan's a church planner. He planted a church in Garfield Heights in Cleveland. It's a, it's a multiracial church that's in the city of Cleveland. This is what Dan wrote. I'm sad and angry all at the same time. I can't believe how gigantic the chasm feels right now. Right now, if I was still Dan Smith with the same personality and character and devotion to Jesus, but I was black, I would really be struggling with anger, forgiveness, bitterness, and even some fear. I would be feeling like the current system isn't working for me or even trying to improve. Mostly, I'd just be hearing the excuses And all of the seemingly heartless rebuttals of no, all lives matter from white people. And if I was in a situation like Philando Castile with his broken taillight, I'm afraid that that black black Dan Smith would also be shot based solely on my intimidating skin color. Something's very wrong with that. So I asked my non-black friends, are you cool with that? Doesn't that move you to compassion at all? Does it move you towards action? I applaud my non-black friends who are speaking up on the issue and not just brushing it off and saying, that doesn't affect me. Black lives matter. Yes, of course, all lives matter. But at this moment, America especially needs to hear that black lives matter. If you resist this statement, it may reveal a heart issue. Not an incurable heart issue, but a heart issue nonetheless. Yes, all lives matter, but the constant rebuttal of no, all lives matter frankly sounds like you just don't care. Very frankly, to me, a privileged white American male, it sounds racist. Black Lives Matter is obviously an easier way to say black lives matter too. Black lives matter as much as white lives do. Black lives matter as much as anybody. Blacks are made in the image of God just like everyone else, Genesis 1. Black people need to hear white people say it right now to know that some of us actually care. Black children and teenagers and young adults need to hear it too especially black men. I'm very sad and very angry. The chasm feels huge. But I, along with many other friends, will stand in the gap and refuse to lose hope. By stand the gap, I mean standing in that awkward place between Black Lives Matter and police officers' lives matter. Yes, I think the system, the training, etc., needs a lot of work. I've overheard racist white cops saying awful inappropriate things to black suspects in my community. But I've also seen white cops in my community go above and beyond to secretly help black people in ways no one else except me witnessed. I know that many white officers are upstanding public servants. If you disagree with that statement, it may be a heart issue. You've got some spiritual work to do. When I read those words, it captured for me the tension that I felt as I read the news, because I grew up in a in a world that. Um, well, let me let me just tell you about it. I grew I grew up in a neighborhood that was all white. I went to a high school of twenty four hundred students that that less than one half of one percent was was classified as other. So that one half of one percent included all the blacks, it included all of the Asians, it included all the Hispanics and anybody else that, wasn't, that didn't look white on the outside. When as a kid I sang, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And I heard red and yellow, black and white in my mind growing up. When I heard red, I thought Native Americans, those are the, those are the red people. Yellow, those are the Chinese, they live in China. The, the black people, those were the people in Africa. And the white people, they were the Americans. Because the America I knew, the television shows I watched, the history I studied was almost entirely white. My family still tells the story and gives me grief about when I was eight years old. I had lazy eye and we lived in the little town of Salina. We traveled about two hours back and forth from Salina to Columbus so I could go to Children's Hospital in Columbus and have a pediatric eye surgeon correct my lazy eye. On one of those trips, I'm in the back seat looking out the window. Mom and dad are driving. We're driving through the streets of Columbus, and I'm in the back seat counting. One, two, three. I think I got up in the 50s, and my mom said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm counting black people. I had never seen so many black people in one place at one time in my little eight-year-old life. When I went to college, I went to college in Cincinnati, and the church I attended was in a housing project that was packed by people who were trapped in poverty. Thirty or forty years earlier, the neighborhood had had been white and the church had served the community. But when the neighborhood declined and the housing project was built, white flight happened. And the white members of the church moved away. They'd still come in on Sunday morning to go to church, but after worship, they would hop in their cars and drive away as quickly as possible. About five years before I entered college, a new pastor came to the church believing that the church should minister to the community where God had placed that church. And he began to invite people from the projects, people from the neighborhood, to come to church. Most of the congregation left the church. When I began to worship there, two-thirds of the attenders were black, one-third were white. I volunteered and worked with the youth, all of who were from the neighborhood and all of who were black. Somewhere, I have a picture of me with long blonde hair cornrowed by one of the girls in the youth group. It was frightening, and it may be the reason that I'm bald today. When we moved to Washington, D.C., In 1985, one of the cooperative ministries that I threw myself into was the Greater Washington Christian Education Association. I did so intentionally so I could be part of a kingdom work that extended beyond denominational, racial, and ethnic lines. We were intentionally diverse at every level and hosted a conference that grew to over 5,000 people in attendance that was over 50% from African American churches, about 30% from suburban white churches, and about 20% from Asian churches. When we had our main sessions and looked out, it looked a little bit like John describes heaven, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. The neighborhood in which we lived in Maryland was incredibly diverse. On our court, there were some good old white boys from the country. There were African Americans, there were Asians and Indians and Jews. Our kids played together, and everyone loved each other. We had block parties, and all the families got together. Everybody was a little bit weird and different and unique, but we were all that together. The only thing that we didn't have on our court were Michigan State fans. Um. (laughs) When I was a teenager, I was a follower of Jesus, and I was certain... I was certain I didn't judge others by the color of their skin. It wasn't hard because there were so few people of color in my life. As I have aged and God has continued to teach me, I've come to recognize that judging others by their external appearances is unfair and ugly and incredibly easy to do. As I've tried to process and understand what's going on right now in our nation the intensity of the Black Lives Matter movement and the intensity of the response to the Black Lives Matter movement, I've come to realize how little I know and understand. I want to introduce someone to you in just a couple of minutes who's become a good friend of mine over the last two years. Wayne Lynn is a committed follower of Jesus who lives out his faith on a daily basis as a husband, as a father, as an executive at the Board of Water and Light. He and his wife, Melanie, have three daughters in college. Brittany at Howard University uh, in Washington, DC. Lauren at uh, Central Michigan in Mount Pleasant. And Chanel starts this fall at Washington University in St. Louis. Wayne serves as a deacon at Union Missionary Baptist Church in Lansing, and I want you to know that being a deacon at Union Missionary Baptist Church is a really big deal, okay? Uh, that's, that's a significant position. Wayne's one of the founders and the chairman of the board of the Turning Point of Lansing, an organization whose motto is transforming boys to men. Turning Point works with, uh, works directly with more than 80 young African-American men, many of whom have no male role models They they work to help teach them what it means to be a man in areas of responsibility and honor and integrity and respect and work ethic and more wayne does that because of his love for jesus because of his love for our community because of his love for those boys and wayne is a pretty good racquetball player I am proud to call him my friend. Would you welcome him onto the stage just now? You're good. <laughs> um, just just while, well, before I, I jump into the stuff that we're gonna talk about, um, Melanie, would you stand up? My, my this is Wayne's block. wife, Melanie, and Brittany and Chanel, two daughters. You guys stand up too. Woo-hoo. And um, Ernest and uh, Harvey, stand up. These are two of the guys from The Turning Point.
1: And I also would like to introduce two of my deacons from the union as well. All right. Tony and Ms. Uh, Ms. Cheryl, stand.
0: Welcome. So this past Tuesday, uh, we we went to breakfast together so that we could have a conversation that we can't have on the racquetball court. Um, Wayne's voice is not the only voice that matters on this issue, but his voice is the voice of a leader in the Lansing community, a leader in his church, and his background and story is very different than mine. When we had breakfast on Tuesday, um, one of the things that Wayne said that really grabbed my attention, and and, uh, we've been playing racquetball for two years, Having fun talking about sports stuff, all kinds of things, but to have the conversation we had on Tuesday was a new deal <laughs> and um i was I was being careful in the things I said. Wayne was being careful in the things that he said, but one of the things that that um that stuck out to me was that he said that he 's scared, not concerned about what 's going on, but that he's scared and if you would. Just talk about that for a second. Why are you scared?
1: Yes. uh, Good morning, good afternoon. And one of the things I was mentioning to Rick is, and last weekend we had a leadership convention for 500 African-American young people. And we were in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I I was part of the chaperone crew, and my wife is part of that group, and my, my children. And we had gone to dinner at a venue away from the hotel, which was about five blocks away. And on the way back, we were bringing the young, we were bringing the people back, the young people back, and we were bringing them in groups, and I had a group that wanted to stop at a local convenience store. And in the stop to the convenience store, we went in, and they went about shopping, getting their snacks, all of those things were full of sugar that I wish they were not going to eat that night.
0: Monsters. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yes. And um, it was 1130 at night. And immediately after I got in, and uh, we, I had a couple of mothers with me as well, two police officers came into the door very briskly. They went right past me, and one stood to the side, and another one went right up to about four or five of the African-American young men that was with us and they were going into the cooler to get their snack, to get their refreshment, and very obviously, this police officer stood right by the cooler, to the point where one of the young men, who's on his way to an Ivy League school, on full scholarship, asked the gentleman, the officer, would you like something? Which he did not reply, just kind of gave him a stare. For that moment, I was scared. I didn't know what that officer's intentions were, I didn't know how that young man who didn't have a clue of what was going on, I didn't know how he was gonna respond. I thought that if that young man would have been rude, would have been abrupt, what would have happened? Those were not my kids, I'm in Indiana. I was scared and I really didn't know what to do other than let the moment go by, everything was fine. The police officer, upon looking at the young men and seeing the lanyards that we all had because we were all part of a conference, and he saw ours, he kind of stood back. And when they left, we also had the Indiana, Indianapolis police force shepherding us and watching us as we walked the street back to the hotel, watching us cross roads and all. And I asked one of the gentlemen that was on the the bicycle. He was an African-American police officer. And I told him about that, that situation. And I asked him, did I see what I saw? And he said, yes you did. He said, as a matter of fact, I'm part of the sheriff force, but I volunteered to be here in the city because I knew what kind of things you might be dealing with. And I wanted to be a part of, first of all, he said, I'd never seen 500 African-American teenagers in our city. And I wanted to see that for myself, but more than anything, I wanted to be a part of this because I wanted to make sure what happened would not happen with you. He said, yes, that's what you saw. And he also told me that I should have been scared. That's why Black Lives Matter. And that's the, the fear that I shared that night. We,
0: we live in a crazy environment. Most of us don't think about that kind of environment, those kind of circumstances. Very often, most of us come from a different kind of perspective, a different kind of background. Um, Talk, if you will, just about how you grew up, what it was like. Well, I, I grew up in
1: Hartsville, South Carolina. It's about like like a Charlotte, if you will, like maybe like a duet. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and um, and me and my wife both grew up there. I, I've been knowing my wife. I've been dating my wife since the fifth grade.
0: Oh my! <laughs> I am so sorry, Melanie. <laughs>
1: Been married for 26
0: years. It was a and really small town, right? <laughs> <laughs> she had no other choice.
1: <laughs> but seriously, um, we grew up in a very racially divided town. And I think this was even before Melanie came out. This was the third grade when in most southern cities, you will find that there's a drainage ditch that separates the black and the white community. And on my, in my community, we lived on the black community side of the ditch. And along came integration, and y'all have to excuse my voice, I left it in Indianapolis. (laughs) But um, along came integration, and they integrated the school districts where they drew the lines that actually encompassed my street. So me and my younger sister had to go to the white school. And for about the first month of walking to school, me and my sister had to be escorted by a police officer, Because on the way to school, once we came out by the ditch and came walking through the white community to get to Carolina Elementary, we actually had high school kids that were driving, and even adults, driving alongside of us, you know, jeering us and saying all kinds of racial things to us, even throwing some things at us that third graders should not, and a kindergartner should not have to deal with.
0: Can can you picture that? I mean, can you... that was 1973, yeah, 74, somewhere remember. in there. Um, I said to, in first service to the kids in high school, that seems like ancient history. It's not ancient history. I remember, and I, th- and I think that kind of thing happened when I was too young to pay any attention to it, and it happened when I was in high school.
1: And, and additionally, Mella, you might remember Miss O'Neill. Miss O'Neill, she, she would be she would call roll and she would do it along racial lines. She'll say, will all white girls raise your hand? All white boys raise your hand. Now I'm the only black person in the room. All black girls raise your hand. And one day I thought I, thought I would mess with her and raise my hand. <laughs> and all black boys, that, that's just how racially charged we were
0: does it, does that grab your heart I I hope so um,
1: tell about your friend Max yes Max uh, Max was a good friend of mine after we got through several months and you know got used to each other and I was not the isolated kid in the room Max stepped up and started becoming my friend to the point where as most kids did he invited me home to play. Told my mom. Mom was kind of hesitant, but alright, you sure? And my mom, I, I, by that time, some more African Americans had joined the school, and my sister was going to walk home with them, so I stayed after school and waited for Mac's father to show up. Well, I didn't realize it, that Mac's father was actually the sheriff. And Sheriff Carr shows up, and door opens and Max says, come on Wayne. Max jumps in and Max Senior says, whoa, who's this? He says, this is Wayne. You remember, Dad, I told you Wayne was coming to play with us. And she was like, wait a minute, you did not tell me Wayne was a yes. He said, no, Max, you, you, you can't have one of them And he used the N-word to come and play with you. Then this is what got me more than anything, which shaped my spirituality for a number of years. He said, because God would not be pleased with you if you played with them. And I've told my daughters and my wife that it took me years, maybe until I was in college, to really appreciate white Christianity. Because for a long time, it was branded in the South, Christianity was also coupled with racism. If you don't know, the KKK, which routinely met and rallied in the South in my, in my youth, I'm 51 years old, they did it under the banner of Christianity. They were the Christian brothers, and they were Christians, which made me think that white Christianity was not serious. And it wasn't until I got, I befriended some really good white friends at the University of South Carolina when I was studying engineering. And I started changing my perspective. And that's when I really knew that Christ was for everyone. But it, but, but it goes to show, as Rick said, how Pastor Rick, I'm sorry. No. Black church, I would never be able to call a Pastor Rick. <laughs> don't y'all tell him I said. <laughs> we don't do that. But, 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 but as, as Pastor Rick said, Rick said, your, 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 your background really shapes your perspective. And it took a long time for me to get
0: out of that. One of the things that Wayne said Tuesday at breakfast was, and these words um, ring in my ears. I didn't think there was such a thing as a white Christian because of his experience. Because of his experience. Understand that when we talk about Black Lives Matter, when we talk about this whole issue in terms of racism and all the stuff that's going on, Wayne's a 51-year-old guy that experienced that as a kid, and there isn't any way to distance that stuff from the past, from his childhood, from his life now, although God has brought him through that. That experience impacts Brittany and Chanel impacts the boys that he works with, and that's why it's so critical if we are serious about being followers of Jesus, that we can't just ignore this issue and put it on the back burner. We've got to be proactive to take steps to live out our faith in a way that is devoid of that um, racism, that um, external judgment, all, all that stuff. So, Wayne, um, talk... <clears throat> Talk a little bit about the whole Black Lives Matter. It, um, for many of us, for many of us, we hear Black Lives Matter, and as in Dan's post, we say, well, yeah, Black Lives Matter, but everybody matters. Can, can you just talk about that? Sure. Um,
1: the other day I had a, a shirt on that was, had racquetball on it. it. The word racquetball was yes. on the sleeve. And, you know, I'm an avid racquetball player, and he's a lot better than me, but I kick his butt every now and
0: then. <laughs> are, you, are you allowed to say that to your pastor? Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, um, I was We're going to have shirt. a great conversation I tomorrow morning. Oh, can't, I can't.
1: But um, I, was, I was wearing this shirt, and one of my friends came up to me, and after reading my shirt, he reacted to it in a way saying, so you telling me you think that racquetball is better than basketball and football? Racquetball's not a real sport. Why are you wearing, what do you mean by racquetball? And I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? I didn't say that. I didn't say that, I mean, I have the capacity to like racquetball as well I am an avid football player, not Ohio State. <laughs> Thank you. We
0: need to pray. We need to stop and pray right now.
1: I had to get him on
0: that. Oh, I'm Michigan State. But but, uh,
1: but, uh, but but I'm an avid basketball and football fan as well. But it reminded me of Black Lives Matter. When we say Black Lives Matter, it does not mean that white. We believe that white lives don't matter or Asian lives doesn't matter. It means that black lives matter as well. Matter of fact, I say that black lives matters enough for me to invest my time and effort in my young men, for me to put time and money and energy into ensuring that black on black crime does not not happen, it matters enough for me to speak to groups to bring clarity and understanding and unity and community, it matters that much. Unfortunately, I just read on my phone that three more officers have been shot and may be dead in Dallas just now. I do not ascribe to that. If anybody does that kind of thing under the banner of life, Black Lives Matter is wrong, immoral, and I am not part of that. But it does matter to me that when I have African American young women and men and we are teaching them to survive, I hope you understand that today in this environment we're talking about survival. One wrong move, wrong, one wrong thought one wrong action can get you killed. And it's not just cops. You know, this is not just a cop thing. If, if you haven't heard about the story in Florida where four young African-American men came to get gas at a gas station, their, their music was blaring, and a, a white gentleman and his girlfriend were getting gas on the other side of the pumps, and the white gentleman asked the four teenagers to cut the music down which they refused and probably gave him a lot of lip. And upon his girlfriend going into the store to pay for the gas, he went into the car and got a gun and shot through the SUV. Killing the driver, but wounding the others, but not enough that they couldn't get in the driver's seat and speed away with the dead young man in the car. And it wasn't until that gentleman got back to his hotel, ordered a pizza, and noticed that the news media was you know, talking about this, this shooting and that they were looking for the shooter that he turned himself in. That can be any of us. And every move you make needs to be measured and calculated. And I'm, as I talk to my young people here, because black lives really matter.
0: They really do. The, the perception is, if I, can, if I can speak for the black community, the perception is that blacks don't have the same chance in a crazy situation that whites do. And that's shaped by a whole bunch of things. Whether that's accurate or not is immaterial, that's the perception in the, in the black community. And we as followers of Jesus have got to combat that. Um, I, I when, we, when we had breakfast on Tuesday, I said, um, I asked about the whole, you know, it feels like nobody's making any comments about black-on-black crime. And as I processed that after we left breakfast, um, Wayne just said it, but I'm going to say it again for him. He is a guy who is investing his life in the black community so that black-on-black crime doesn't happen. So that Ernest and Harvey, are not a part of that culture that ends up where people take each other's lives. Um, I, I said, "Can can white people be a part of the turning point? Can can we can we do that?" And um, he said, "Well, <laughs> eh, not really." And that's and that's accurate. But I will say this. Um, The turning point of Lansing is a completely volunteer organization that nobody gets paid anything for and Wayne invests his life in and white money can help. Um. (laughs) We do take white money. (laughs) Would you please express your appreciation to Wayne for being a part of stuff today? I just must say
1: one thing, as I said in the Thirty Church, you know, I'm a black deacon from a black church, and I've always wanted to do this. So can you indulge me? Can the church say amen? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man.
0: Um, I... I uh Let me share some stuff to kind of bring the service together that I think is important. When I I went through the process, and I'm thinking through this, and thinking through the whole Black Lives Matter when the the officers were shot, when the people were shot in St. Paul, and uh, working through it, black lives matter, white lives matter, Asian lives matter, Hispanic lives matter. Um, Injustice matters. Injustice is what is at the core of God's heart. How do I know that? It's because God in His nature, in His character, is just. We say that again. God in His nature, in His character, is just. If you've got the app, uh, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to work through the scriptures that I have there, but there there are four sets of scripture from the Old Testament where God is trying to teach his people about his character, about who he is. There are four scriptures that just represent this picture of the heart of God and it being consumed by justice, by concern for those who are oppressed. God is just, and God wants justice for everyone. Justice for all is not just an American concept. It's a biblical command. If you're a follower of Jesus, justice for all is something that God calls us to. One of the writers in the New Testament was a guy named Paul. Paul was a guy initially in his life who was um, racially motivated completely. He hated the Christians because they weren't Jews. He saw them as a, as, a, as a separation and he wanted to kill them. God got a hold of his heart and changed him. He began to be persecuted because he believed in the unity of the church, in the unifying, uh, in the, in the unifying ground at the foot of the cross. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth these words, and I've made some changes to just make it applicable to today's message. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians 12. Just as the body is one and, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greek, slaves or free, black or white and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body doesn't consist of one member, but many. If a white person should say, because I'm not a black, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make him any less a part of the body. If a Hispanic should say, because I'm not Asian, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make him any less a part of the body. If the whole body were men, where would be the compassion of women? If the whole body were... Mature adults, senior citizens, where would the excitement and the passion of youth be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member or race or nationality or gender, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. A white person can't say to a black, I have no need of you, nor again, a black to a white, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts don't require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are a part of the body of Christ and individually members of it. Did you hear what Paul said? God's will, God's will is that there would be no division in the body that the members have the same care for one another, that when one suffers, all suffer together. When one is honored, all rejoice together. We live in a crazy, broken, mixed-up world. And so, so the operative question at the end of the message today is, what do you do? What do you do with the Black Lives Matter movement? What do you do if more police officers have been shot and killed in Dallas? What do you do with that stuff? Let me give you five things just real quick. The first is this, pray. Pray like crazy. Pray for our leaders, pray for the people in your world, pray for yourself, pray for judges, pray for for police officers, pray that God would bring reconciliation because God is the only one who can change hearts. Pray, pray. Second thing, reach out to African-Americans who are in your world. Whether they're at work, in your neighborhood, somebody that you know casually, somebody you play racketball with, reach out. And somehow allow your worlds to come together. Go to a show. Invite them to dinner. Join their world. Invite them to your world. Go to Union Missionary Baptist Church some Sunday. Sit with Wayne and Melanie. Have conversations with people who are African Americans where you listen more than you talk. James said, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger ask questions, and hear their story. I didn't know until Tuesday that story about Max, about my friend as a kid experiencing that. Come to the defense of somebody who's wronged. No matter matter what the color of their skin, their station in life, when you see injustice as a follower of Jesus, stand up be counted, get involved, even at personal risk. Last thing, don't give in to fear. It's, it is too easy to be afraid of what's going on and, and to just withdraw. Don't give in to fear. John said, perfect love casts out fear. Well, we've got a whole bunch of folks at North Point who are actively living this out. People who are adopting kids that come from a different racial background than they do. People who are judges, who are, making, uh, who are working in the court systems for, for God's purposes. People who are police officers. People who are uh, foster care parents. Keep doing it. Keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Take action to live out and bring God's justice into the world. Followers of Jesus cannot selectively choose to ignore justice. Followers of Jesus cannot selectively choose to ignore injustice. My friend Dan finished his post with these words. Lastly, I think Jesus Church has a great opportunity to be a community of hope right now. At our multi-ethnic church, for example, we promote honest transparency and patient graciousness as we work through insanely messy issues like empathy, fear, privilege, forgiveness, racism toward blacks, racism toward whites. Because of this, I believe that we're a light of hope in greater Cleveland. Personally, I don't have any legislative answers. That's not in my wheelhouse. I only have spiritual answers from Jesus and his followers. Love God and love people. Forgive. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Mourn with those who mourn. Encourage one another daily. There is no better way to end today's service than in a time of communion. Because communion involves three different aspects. It it, it involves a time of introspection where you look at your own life and you say, God, what's in my heart? And in that analysis, you see the ugliness of sin and the mistakes that we've made. That's a part of communion. It also involves a vertical relationship, a, a relationship with God where we can repent. We can say, God, I lay myself down before you. Do your work in me. God, I understand how Desperately tremendous, your love is for us. You sent Jesus so that I could experience that forgiveness, so that I could be redeemed. And there's, a, and there's a horizontal aspect to communion as well, a piece that brings us together in corporate worship as we remember the death of Jesus. We share communion this morning, not individually, not as isolated people, but we share it corporately here at North Point, as we're sharing communion, we're sharing symbolically with our brothers and sisters at Union Missionary Baptist Church. We're sharing communion with, with, with Redeemer, with Riverview, with Faith Church, churches all over the city. We, we're, we're sharing communion with the Yembi tribe in Papua New Guinea. We're sharing communion with the Burkettes in Ukraine. We're sharing this remembrance of Jesus with all of the saints of history. There's no better way to end. I, I want you to just stay seated this morning. The band's going to sing a new song, a song we've not sung before. And I just, I just want you to absorb the lyrics, to hear the voice of God in the, in the lyrics. About halfway through the song, the ushers are going to come down and they're going to pass the trays with bread and, and uh, little cups of juice. If you're a follower of Jesus, take one as they go by. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've not allowed him to have complete control of your life, just just feel free to pass the tray along. At the end of the song, I'm going to come back up and lead us together in in taking the bread, and taking the cup, so that corporately we might experience communion in a physical way. The band's going to play. Let me just say this. If you don't know Jesus... If you don't know Jesus, hear the words of this song. Listen to the content that's there. And if God's tugging at your heart, if he's pulling at you and you want to make a change, you want God to transform the way that you think, after the service, come down and talk to me, talk to Wayne. There is nothing we would rather do than introduce you to Jesus in a very real way that can transform your life. Let's share together.